Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, I'm Jonathan Moles, and you're listening to Startup Stories, the weekly show from the Financial Times in which I talk to entrepreneurs about the joys and challenges of starting a business. Ten years ago, Julie Dean decided to invest £600 into starting a company to help pay for her children's school fees. Her company proved more successful than she ever dreamt possible. But there were times when Julie thought the success might make the company spin out of control. She told me how she gathered the courage to stand up to investors who were turning the company into something she no longer recognised. You know, I was never born to be an entrepreneur. I was born to sort things out when they go a bit pear-shaped. And things did go a bit pear-shaped when my daughter was having a, a bit of a tough time at school. There were some people in her class that weren't perhaps as kind as they could have been. And so that kind of bullying, hostile environment got to be something that wasn't helping her. And so it wasn't helping me. You're only as happy as your least happy child. And so I needed to step in and do something. So some parents go into the school, but you decided to set well, up a company. I, you know, I went into the school, but there's only so many times and it wasn't going to be sorted out. So, yes, I needed to do something. And unless you're going to move house, you're not going to change catchment area. So that means you're looking at private and that means you're looking at big bills. So Cambridge Satchel Company was really set up to pay for your daughter's school fees. Yeah, and my son, because I have two children and I didn't want them hating each other and having chips on their shoulders. So it was two children, private school, start making money. That's the only reason. That's it. How did the satchel idea come about? The satchel idea came about because I'm blessed with the kind of personality that gets irritated at things easily. I'm often finding that I look at something and think, well, why would they do that? And there'll always be something that you look at and you think this could be done better or that could be done better. And so satchels were one of those things. I always seem to be buying more school bags because zips would break or there was a, a motif on there that they no longer liked or I couldn't keep it looking as clean as I wanted to keep it looking. And that was a, a source of irritation. So it sat there in the back of my mind. And so when I said to Emily, you know, enough's enough. I'm done with this school. You're not coming back here in September. The obvious thing is to go home and make a list on an Excel spreadsheet. And so I made a list of 10 things and it was called something like, you know, make school fees dot XLS. And across the columns, I would rate them as to how much money I needed to start. Would the money start coming? Would the cash flow fit with school fee flow? What would happen if I died of a heart attack? Could it be done by somebody else? You know, all of these sort of columns going off and Satchel scored highest. So Satchel's won. How did you get the money to make the first Satchel's? I've been very involved with Cambridge University. I was there as a student. I was there as a fellow before my career break. And I'd organised a lecture day and 
sort of helped with the membership of one of the big societies there and I'd be paid £600. So I thought, well, that's unlabeled, so I'll start it with that. What I need to do is make school fees. What I have is £600. How am I going to do it? Well, I'm going to need to find a way of making satchels because I'm definitely not blessed in the arts and crafts department. And then I'm going to need a way of selling those satchels. And so these challenges would come up and I just addressed them sort of one at a time. Doing it myself and then scaling up to use my mother as a workforce because, you know, our vision is aligned and you don't need to pay her and she's very good natured. She was Um, officially your co-founder. Yes, I always say she was my co-founder because she was always there being very encouraging because you will be surrounded by people that will say, you know, if that was a good idea, somebody would have done it already and, you know, you shouldn't do that, you should just get a proper job. So you do need someone in your corner that totally believes in you and for me that was my mother. And who was making the first satchels for you? It was quite hard to find somebody to make them. And so I had gone onto the internet and looked for satchel manufacturers that didn't produce anything, handbag manufacturers that produce things, but, you know, they're all overseas. Saddle makers, leather workers, shoemakers, you get more and more desperate. And eventually I found a school that still listed a satchel on its uniform. So I called their outfitters, a Mm. small place in Scotland and just nagged him until he told me where he got them from. When I first started, I was using somebody, they could produce up to about 200 bags a week, which, you know, when you're starting from nothing, seems more than you'll ever sell. You know, I remember thinking, if I could sell 10 bags a day, that would be absolutely fantastic. And so I thought 200 a week would be fine. But after about three months, 200 a week wasn't enough. And I got up to the stage of having four independent manufacturers. But the issue there becomes one of consistency against your product. And so I was selling to Harrods, you know, and to Urban Outfitters in the States. And I could only do that by pulling in all of my manufacturers. But when one is using a slightly different rivet to another one, it does become an issue. Not if you're selling individually on the internet. Customers don't mind that much. But when two bags are sitting next to each other, in somewhere like Harrods, then they do expect them to all look the same. And so those kinds of issues start rearing their heads. And how do you solve that? I was really very committed to the suppliers because without them supplying me, I wouldn't have a business. And so I tried to make it so that particular orders were covered by particular suppliers, but that's not the most efficient way of doing it and that can cause problems. And about... Two years in, I started making these fluorescent satchels. And one of my manufacturers said their ladies wouldn't make the fluorescent bags because it gave them a headache. And so that was really bad news because those were our big sort of made-it bags. We, We were selling absolutely thousands of those bags. Now you're a global brand. How quickly did that happen? It scaled really quickly. So my initial investment of £600 was worth about £40 within five years. We were featured by Google as the face of Google Chrome on on the Google ad that showed all over the UK and in the cinemas and on TV. And so there were definite periods in there where something would happen that would catapult us forward and we'd have big growth. But the thing is, when that thing passes it'll drop off. 
And so when the fluorescent trend dies down, you need to start looking for that next thing. And so it's not a steady upward trend. At the moment, we're around about 12 million turnover. We were about there five years ago. And then things really slacked down where I made some pretty awful mistakes after accepting an investment. And now it's been growing again for the last two years. So we're back up and growing again. And we make about 10,000 bags a month in the UK. You took a large investment from a tech VC index ventures, $21 million. What was the logic for doing that? The logic was we were the seventh fastest growing company in the UK. We'd won the Startup Awards. We'd won the Global Fashion Awards. Ticking so many boxes that my life was being overtaken by potential investors. And so I asked BDO, one of the big accounting firms, to go through all of these things. And every time I got one of these emails, I just sort of forwarded it straight to the people at BDO. And I just said, this is your area. You know the good ones from the bad ones. Come up with three that you think are the best, and I'll meet those three. Index, I really like the person that was our contact for Index. So Giuseppe, one of the founders of Index, who, yes, Index are a digital and a tech investing company, but Giuseppe loves product. He's this very passionate Italian sort of founder. He was a founder as well, you know, founding Index. And I like him. He's super smart. The offices are wonderful. They look successful. They've got great brands. They've got a great portfolio. But I need to like the people I'm working for. And Index was the right choice for us for that reason. But there's also a cautionary tale. Absolutely. And the the cautionary tale is I didn't choose the wrong investor, but I didn't manage the investment well. So as a founder, and when you own 100% of something, you get very used to just doing things your way. You know what you're doing. Your vision is very clear. When I took on an investor, I started second-guessing myself a lot. You know, I sort of thought they know how to scale a company. I founded it and got it to, you know, 11, 12 million turnover, but they know how to scale it. I haven't done that before. But actually, you know, I hadn't founded a company before either, you know, so I should have had a bit more confidence in that. There were people from the investors' side saying, don't be the kind of founder that micromanages. You need to have a C-suite, a chief technology officer, chief financial officer, chief marketing officer, chief, I mean, chief everythings. And I didn't have one chief anything. So I needed a suite of these people. When all of those people come in at one time, then the feeling inside your company changes. You can assimilate one of these people at a time and bring them over to the way that as a brand you would do things. You know, my logo I did myself in 20 minutes on Word with Word art. And you know what, it's fine. And now that we've been successful, people call it genius. If we'd have failed, they'd have said it was rubbish and it was all because I did a logo in Word. But that's just the kind of thing it is. But If you've got one of those people, you can show them the joy and the creativity of doing things that way. When you have a lot of them come in at the same time and they're from very different, much, much bigger corporate backgrounds, 
then the feel of the place changes very, very quickly. What also changes is your overhead bill. Because these aren't people that come in and roll their sleeves up and say, oh, great, you know, how lovely to be back at a startup. Nothing like a bit of bootstrapping. These are people that will come in and recruit instantly seven or eight people to be on their team. And they won't do it through LinkedIn and the website and asking around if people know people. These will all be done through recruitment agents who then charge you 20% of this person's salary in one chunk as soon as they join, and there'll be seven of these. This kind of thing is just mind-boggling when, you know, I would watch every penny. I was feeling really unsettled, and I was feeling very unsettled because I knew that I had a great investor who had a great track record, and so I needed to trust that this was the right thing to do, and yet not liking the way it was feeling. I was also unsettled because at the same time, my marriage fell apart. I'd been married for 24 years. And I think if your home life is stable and you're having a very challenging time with work changing, then that's one thing or the other way around. But if both go at the same time, then you're not as confident in yourself and you're not as strong in yourself to fight on every front. How do you cope? I adopted this strategy that I really wouldn't recommend. I call it the it's fine strategy. So, you know, whenever anybody asks you anything, you just say it's fine and you smile and you try to look like you believe it. When inside it doesn't feel fine. And then at work with people saying, well, suddenly there's a London office. Do the London office feel they're more important than the Cambridge office because the Cambridge office has always been the home of the brand? Is this going to be a problem? No, it's fine. You know, split sight, that's fine. And then it was amongst all of that time that I found out that my one large manufacturer was actually using our leather to make bags and make copies and put their own label on it and hide them across the road and go after my customers. You know, don't worry, it's fine. I'll just start up a factory. And you can hold on to that for so long and actually a surprising amount of time. But I think it's helpful to know that lots of people do go through these things. And this is when your test of resilience comes up. And if you're lucky, they won't all happen at once. You know, I never imagined that I would have to start a factory having no manufacturing knowledge and a backlog of 16,000 bags. I didn't choose the timing, but it's worked out. And actually, it's a blessing now because we make our own bags and we don't have to be in a queue against bigger brands that would have greater precedence over us, we can say, no, we are making in the UK and we want apprenticeships because we believe that having skills in the UK in manufacturing is an important thing to us. We can do our product development a lot faster and we have control over it. So now it's a great thing. But at the time, it was a little bit of a shock. What was it, do you think, that turned it around? I think a lot of it was I needed to go through a really difficult phase. And what was the low ebb? We had never, as a company, had a single loss-making month. And then in that first year afterwards, we lost £2 million. That felt like a pretty low ebb. And a lot of the money was going to the factory to invest in the manufacturing so that we could scale up properly. You know, it was going on a big flagship store to show that we're a big brand, all this kind of thing. You know, there were all these things that I know where the money went, but I still and am still 
not at all happy any time we're not profitable. What happened with Index? So Index is still my investor. I've got a really good relationship with Giuseppe. We did obviously have disagreements about how things needed to be done. But he and Index have trusted me because they know how passionate I am about the company. You know, it's like my third child. And so ultimately, it was not sustainable the way it was going. And so I needed to fix it. And I didn't take any more money from them. The good news is now we turned a three million a year loss into a quarter of a million profit in the space of a year. But a lot of that was because I found my strength again and I made a very big stand and I sacked a lot of people. And I didn't make myself very popular, but I just had to have that faith that, yes, I was going to wipe a million pounds off our payroll. And I was so convinced that I didn't worry about who's going to pick up the workload of all of those people. And, you know, for once I can say, it's fine and actually mean it, which is really nice. Those are some tough decisions about getting rid of people. And, and, and other tough decisions as well. Things like, you know, year before last, in retail, so much of your money is made in the lead up to Christmas. And then there was one particularly crushing year where everybody seemed to decide to keep the discounts that were put in place around Black Friday and Cyber Monday and keep those discounts in the lead up to Christmas. And that was absolutely crushing. You know, we'd, we'd never experienced that before. And so suddenly our margin was just gone. But that was the same for a lot of people. And, you know, we saw a lot of people go under then. And so part of turning this around was just saying no. Maybe other people are going to discount constantly and discount a lot, we can't afford to do it. Our prices are set at a level where the margin is workable and is fair, but it's not greedy. So we can't do these massive discounts for huge periods every other week with the discount code. We just can't afford to do it. So we just have to say that we make in the UK. We don't say, yes, we could make it for a tenth of the price and we'll offshore it and then we'll do discounts. But they're not really discounts because our margin's so big. We don't do that. And so we just need to be very good at communicating and we need to stop this constant discounting. And that was really sort of scary. My One of the C-suite definitely left at that point. He was not prepared to go along with that. I asked Aurore Hoshard at Cass Business School in the City of London to comment on Julia's challenges with VC funding. Well, I think obviously now listening to Julie share her opinions afterwards, obviously we can think she could have done differently. I think she did have a good feeling and she felt that, you know, the people she connected with at Index Ventures were very nice. And I think that's a very crucial thing. You want to get along with the people you're going to be working with. So I think that at least she got right. She had very ambitious goals with the company as to, you know, she wanted to expand, expand in different markets. But possibly the scaling up went too quickly. It's a matter of how when she raised so much money, she almost kind of lost her confidence and probably felt, I'm in a different league now, so I need to do things differently. She was used to bootstrapping and looking after every penny. Suddenly having so much money 
made a feel maybe that she could just go a bit quicker by going lavish on certain things that in retrospect were probably not something that were crucial to the scaling of that company. As usual, we'll leave the last word to our entrepreneur, Julie Dean. What are the lessons she'd offer other entrepreneurs? What I say to a lot of people starting up in those early days is you'll always be striving to get to the next thing. You will always be reaching for something. But in those early days, it's really important to be very clear about why you're doing it. You know, so I did this to make school fees. I made school fees and I sent the children to a great school. So I'm never going to feel unsuccessful. And the other thing I realized was a lot of the bad things that happen, they're actually sort of very ego-driven. You know, so success for me was seeing Emily and Max in that school uniform, doing well at that school. That's what it was set up for. But then, golly, I was the first woman to win Entrepreneur of the Year for the whole of Europe. That felt great, you know, got an OBE, that felt great. But you can't be so tied up in your own ego that you think that's the reason why everything's got to work just so that people keep thinking I'm great because, I mean, that's ridiculous. Next week, we talk to a tech entrepreneur who started inventing antivirus software while still a teenager after accidentally infecting the family computer with malware. But before you go, I'd like to invite you to contribute to our Financial Times podcast survey. We're asking listeners to rate our podcasts and to tell us what you like and don't like about our shows. To contribute to our survey, follow the link in our show notes or go to ft.com forward slash podcast feedback and enter our prize draw. And don't forget, you can catch up on our previous episodes of Startup Stories if you visit our special page, ft.com slash startup. Goodbye and thanks for listening. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.